So the scripture reading is from Genesis 38, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called him Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everybody. Just uh, getting used to this new lectern myself. Uh, it's nice and see-through. I have a few announcements before I begin. And that is, uh, as Christine mentioned in her announcements, uh, we have a special congregational meeting in two weeks. And in two weeks, we are going to select one more nominating committee member. The purpose of the nominating committee getting together is to nominate on behalf of our congregation um, deacons and elders. So in 2018, I would like at least two new deacons and one more elder. So we're going to nominate another committee member. And the names are in your bulletins. And that's why we keep on praying for the people that are our leaders, but especially they're there so that you can pray for uh, Christine Park, Christine Yang, and Joe Jang. So those are our three currently. And in two weeks, we're going to um, get the fourth person so that we can complete our nominating committee. Um, who You might ask or wonder who's qualified. You know, this is up to the discernment and the wisdom of you guys. That's what I'm saying. Let's pray about it. And continue to offer up your heart to the Lord. It's not a popularity contest. But of course, it's not someone like, oh, this person, he's a good person. He should just do it. Or she should just do it because of whatever reason, personal reason you might have. But it's really to offer up to the Lord your heart and saying, God, uh, please help me and our church to prayerfully go through this process. Uh, So that's really important that we do that. And then we will... Uh, in the course of a few months after that, nominate deacons and elders uh, as we go forward. Now, that's pretty exciting. 
you know? It's pretty exciting. We had two elders, and that was exciting, and oh my goodness, it's already time for another elder, and time flies, huh? You young guys, you got, your young guys are now all old. That's what it means. Um, but no, seriously, it's, it's something that we want to continue to grow in. And the second announcement I have is, uh, in the beginning of the year, I did announce and explain briefly about why we as a church chose the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, for our uh, Bible. And, oh, there, that's so quick. Thank you. Um, and the reason why is, well, don't put that up yet until I ask for it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't want you guys to be reading, like, what's going on, but... The reason why is basically I want to continue to teach from the Bible. And from the Bible, there's differences between translations. And we're going to say translations versus paraphrases. Uh, the line kind of gets blurred, so it, it's not a black and white subject. And the difference between a translation and a paraphrase, I'm going to give you this one quick example, is... If any of you know Korean, uh, I'm going to butcher it because I have an accent, but 이 국물이 차갑다, right? If you say 이 국물이 차갑다, and I'm going to translate that into English. If any of you know Korean, a lot of you would translate 이 국물이 차갑다 into this soup is cold, this soup is cold, right? But we could also translate it as this soup doesn't taste good. 이 국물이 차갑다 can be translated into, this soup doesn't taste good. And when I told some of my friends, I tested it out on some of my friends, they said, that's a horrible translation. That's not what it means. If anybody knows what 이국물이 차갑다 means, you would not translate it as, this soup doesn't taste good. In fact, the literal translation is, this soup is cold. But what if I said, in the context, in the context of where we were culturally, cold soup is a great thing. People love cold soup. In fact, this culture, all they eat is naengmyeon. And in the context that I want to say is this soup didn't taste good to the person eating it because it was cold. In that culture, it was bad. So the translator could paraphrase that and say the soup didn't taste good to help the reader understand what it really meant by saying the soup was cold. Are you guys with me so far? Okay, good. Um, I don't want to go too slow but too fast because this is important. So the translation and paraphrase is different. And the reason why we chose ESV over, let's say, NASB or NIV or the Message or the Living Translation, there's tons out there. There's even the NIV 84, things like that. The reason why we chose this one is I personally believe that it's the best for teaching and preaching because it is quite a literal translation, as best as it could be, but it's easy to read. For instance, NASB is literal, but it's so hard to read smoothly. NIV is so nice, and you can just read it, but some of the translations are really big paraphrases. And I'm going to give you an example. I was hoping that you could put the two verses together. Is that possible? If not, that's fine. Um, but uh, th the difference between two verses I want to give between the ESV and just the NIV because we're changing over from the NIV. I'm not going to give you the whole list of why. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 8, 35 and 36. 
in the ESV, Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 36, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. So that's the ESV. I'm going to turn to the NIV. And NIV writes this, almost exactly the same. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all the day long. So it seems like a, a slight kind of change here. Um, what's the actual word? The, the actual Greek word I'm going to use is from being killed in the ESV and face death in the NIV. The actual Greek word is thanatumetha. And thanatumetha literally just means being killed. And so why would you translate it face death? So it could be there is a reason why. The scholars got together and they said, you know what? We want to kind of make this a little softer. I don't know. I wasn't at the board meeting when they decided this in the NIV. But it seems a little softer. Um, facing death doesn't necessarily mean being killed. And so I could be in the army, and I can be a soldier out in the field, and I could be facing death every day. Every moment I'm out there in the field, I'm facing death. But is that what Paul is talking about? It could be. That's my point. But what was he literally saying? He was literally saying... We are being killed because not only were they facing death, they were literally being slaughtered. They were being killed. They were being martyred. That was the first church. And so the ESV, I thought, had a better uh, translation as far as that is concerned. Interestingly enough, I believe probably, and someone can do the research on this, is I think they probably translated the New Testament and then the Old Testament for a lot of these translations. And the reason being is, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, or for your sake, we face death all the day long, is actually a quote. Where is that quote from? It's from Psalm 44, 22. So Psalm is Hebrew. This is Greek, right? So they translated something from Greek, which was translated from Hebrew. And they translated it back into English. So this gets a little confusing, maybe, but I hope not. I hope that you're all with me. In the Hebrew, if you look at the NIV, Psalm 44, 22, they say the exact same thing. For your sake, we face death all the day long, or all day long. And ESV in Psalm 44, 22, it also says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. What's it say in the actual Hebrew? In the actual Hebrew, it's hiragnu. Hiragnu just means we are killed all day. We are just killed all day. That's what, it, that's what it literally means. So it seems to me that a lot of this, so that it have continuity, uh, they needed to make the English both on the Old Testament, New Testament the same. And then some translations have weaknesses. So some of you might be like, after hearing this, ah, Pastor Eugene said, Romans chapter 8 uh, NIV is ridiculous. That is not what I'm saying, by the way. You're paraphrasing me then. That's terrible. Um, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying every translation has its merits and its pitfalls. 
Every translation is good, I believe. Even if you have a complete paraphrasing of the Bible, if you can read it, that's awesome. So a good rule to know is any translation is better than no translation, honestly. Honestly, as bad as it could be, you could be horribly trained. Like, we could have a seminary student uh, translating the Greek to English. And it will be horrible because seminary students are big noobs in the language. And that is still better than no translation is what I'm saying. Um, if you can, so if you're doing a 90-day Bible reading, ESV is a little too tough. NASB, forget about it. Um, NIV is even tougher. And you decide, I want to go with Eugene Peterson's The Message. Then I say, go for it. Bless you. Read it. Listen to it on tape. Whatever it takes, get the Bible in you. But for our church, when we are gathered together for teaching and preaching purposes, I would like to use the ESV. And when I explained it to our Pilgrim Church and KM people too, they were pretty excited. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and why don't we do that too? And I was like, what? So they even want to use the ESV in their uh, Korean English translation Bibles. You know how the Korean Bibles have both Korean on the left and English on the right, but it's usually NIV. They were wondering if they could change it to the ESV. And so it's really awesome that a lot of people are supportive of this and want to just kind of be unified when we move along in this direction. Um, that is why we use the ESV. I hope that explanation was clear enough. If anything is unclear, you're welcome to come talk to me. You can be like, I don't like this about this translation in the ESV. And I would be like, most, most of the times I, I would say I agree, maybe. You know, how much Greek do you know? Um, and so I, I would sometimes say, I mean, I agree to a certain extent. And, you know, I mean, if you go to seminary, you know, you, you not only learn, you learn a language in one class, but it's not like they teach you context history all the time. In fact, you take another class for context, historical criticism and literary criticisms of how they wrote certain things. And so you need to put all those things together to fully understand. And even then, we need to be humble. We're like, maybe we don't know everything. And sometimes we just make it way too complicated that it is. Maybe the soup is just cold. That's it. Why am I reading into this? The soup was just cold. And so sometimes it's like that. And that's great. You know why that's great? Because we could get together and we can start learning about the Bible, asking questions. Why was this said? What does this mean? And that's what it is. Instead of getting together, what's the first thing that we talk about? What game was on? What we're going to eat for lunch or dinner? Where, where, where we're going to go drink? Uh, soup, right? Uh, <laughs> things like that. That's all we talk about. You know, it's great. Imagine we get together and be like, oh, what do you think about Pastor Eugene saying hiragnu in Hebrew? And I looked it up. And it's spelled a little differently. No, you're wrong, first of all, if you say that. But I looked it up, and I think it said this. And then that's a great conversation. So this is my hope, that as we read and as we study the Word, this is something that gets us excited. You know, this is something that's part of our daily conversation. Instead of being like, wow, this is, this is boring. This is nerd stuff. But this is actually exciting. Honestly, it is. And... A lot of us here are bilingual, and one of the biggest, and you, got, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I bet when you watch a Korean show and you know some English and there are some subtitles on there, you read subtitles like, no, 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 that's no good, right? It even excites you to a certain degree. So even in the same way, when we read the Bible, 
It should be done in this lens where we really appreciate what we've been given. You know, thank the Lord. Thank God, seriously, for translations that we can have something that we can read and understand. Because ultimately, in the end, what does the Bible say? The Bible talks about Jesus, and that's what we need to know. So that's my little bit on the ESV. I hope that made sense. We're going to continue on with Genesis chapter 38. And the title is uh, Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven. And I put dot, dot, dot. I put the ellipses there because uh, there's a line that comes after. Does anybody know? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's the line. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? Uh, I don't know if you know the song. Um, but there's, there are other people who have sang that line in their own songs. But that's, that's the title of today's message. Last, two weeks ago, we talked about Joseph and his journey. Joseph seems like this bratty boy, this bratty kid, this tattletale. And his brother's like, we're going to kill him. And we saw this little dynamic at play. The firstborn, Reuben, he really wants, he wants to be a leader. I don't know if you know that in your own circles, there's always that one guy who wants to be a leader, who wants to take charge and be like, guys, let's go to Nurebang or NRB. And the other people are like, nah. And the guy, the guy's like all hurt and sensitive. He's like, no one listens to me. But that's Reuben. That was Reuben. And then we see the fourth son come out. His name is Judah. And goes, guys, let's just do this. Might as well make a little profit. And all the brothers are like, yeah, yeah, good idea. Let's make some money off of our brother. And you see this leader kind of emerge in the circle. And a lot of people are like, wait, this is Joseph's story. So when you read the Bible, this is Joseph's story, isn't it? It's mainly about Joseph. 38. Why does Judah come in? What's the point? So maybe we should just skip 38 and just go straight to 39 where you see Joseph and Potiphar's wife almost get it on, right? That seems a little more juicy than me to me than Judah and Tamar. That's, I mean, if you read it, it's just a little bit incestuous and like, uh, what is going on here? Uh, but this is how chapter 38 starts. It happened at that time. And that means at that same time, and literally means at the same season. So the same time Judah makes this offer to take a little money off of selling his own little brother, this is happening. So they sell the little brother. They get 20 pieces of silver. They split it. I assume they split it. And Judah just leaves. He's like, mm, you want me to be your leader, but... I don't want to be your leader. You guys are scrubs. I'm out. So he literally just left by himself. He left, leaves the family and he goes and he meets a certain man who was a, a Dulamite. And his name was Hira, right? And the Dulamite whose name was Hira. First things first, uh, friends are important, guys. Who you hang out with is incredibly important. Who you hang out with, spend your life with, determines your path. Instead of being with his brothers, maybe they're not perfect. In fact, I would say they're downright very not perfect. Uh, but at least they knew about who God was. They had some history. They had some accountability. He decides to make this Canaanite his best bud. And that is how we start. You see this back, backdrop just in verse 1. It's so rich. There's so much to it. And then it goes to verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. 
He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. This is really interesting because these are the very, almost so similar, almost word for word, the same verbs that are used when we talked about Shechem and Dinah. Remember the three verbs? He saw, he took, raped, right? Same verbs. Look, he saw and he took and they got, they got a baby. Um, and so this is so interesting how this story is now set up. It's almost as if the whole uh, Dinah, Dinah's rape and now Judah's rape is like, if you, re- if you read that, and now you see, oh, I can kind of have, this. there's like this little omen about what's about to happen. You kind of sense it. You feel it. And they bore a son, and they named him Ur, which is also interesting because the, if you flip Ur, uh, it's the Hebrew word for evil. So there's uh, Aleph and Rafe, or it's read this way, Aleph and Rafe. And then you'd say er, but if you said the R and the A, so the Rafe and Aleph, it would be spelled Ra. Ra in Hebrew means evil. We actually don't know exactly what he did, but apparently it was evil enough that God would just strike him down. And a lot of us joke like that. You know, I, I'm going to do this. I hope God doesn't strike me dead. And you're still here. So, you know, praise God for his uh, mercy. Not so the case for Ur. He just died. So, yeah, it didn't work for him. He's like, I hope God doesn't strike me dead, but he did. Anyway, um, so he was so evil, you see Ur died. And Tamar is the wife that he got, well, Judah got for his son Ur. Back in, back in those times, the, the father would pick a wife for his sons, because it was really a family union. I thought a lot about that. And I always think, man, we think we're so special and we're better because now we marry out of love. Uh, yeah, look, look where that's led us. I don't think we're that much better. To be honest, I think everything has its flaws and imperfections. And I, I can't say that the way we kind of find our marital partners is morally superior than what they had. But Judah would look and vet a family, and if they like the family, they would be like, can we make a deal where you marry into my family and we become one family? So they, uh, Judah apparently picked Tamar. Uh, all these, all these names might sound uh, interesting, like Shua. Shua is, um, I don't know what that means, but if you look in the uh, Hebrew, Shuka, if you just add one more syllable, it's the same word for lust. That's interesting because Judah did what he did. And ironically enough, very coincidentally enough, Shua sounds so similar to the word lust. You know, that's like saying, I'm going to marry a girl named Luxt. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's just one letter away. So, you know, Luxt, I Luxt you. You know, that kind of thing. And so it's very similar. Um, and so you see, like, Judah's kind of personality really coming out here. In, verse, in chapter 37, yeah, you saw he was kind of a leader, albeit not in a good way, but he was still a leader. But you see all his personality and his issues start to unfold here when he looks at a girl. 
he lusts after her. And this person was not a person that feared God or knew God. In fact, it seems as though he only lusted after her and they had a children. They had children and it's no surprise that the children are evil because none of them knew God and there is no sign here that Judah told them anything about God. There's nothing here. Uh, but God puts Ur to death. So now what happens is when the firstborn dies, bless you, uh, when the firstborn dies, he goes to Onan, the secondborn. Why don't you go into your sister-in-law and conceive? And you might be confused. That's just weird. Why would you do that? The way they set up their uh, economic system is that the firstborn qu quite literally gets 50% of the inheritance. So if I have three sons, uh, if I had two sons, then it wouldn't be 50%. It would be, I would, the firstborn would get two-thirds and the secondborn would get one-third. If I had three sons, the firstborn probably got 50% and the second and third, 25 each. So basically the firstborn gets double of whatever the inheritance uh, the other sons get. So Ur dies, but he needs to leave, he needs to leave a family so that the father can give Ur's legacy the 50%. Onan knew this. Onan's like, if, I, if, if Tamar has a kid, that's Ur's kid. And that kid is going to be the one that the line passes down to. 50% goes to that kid. I don't, want, I don't want 25%. I want all of it. So that is, why, that is what happens. So Onan doesn't, you know, let her conceive. And she, she does, she's not without a kid. What does that mean for Tamar? You know, Tamar and all this seems to be um, neglected, abused, overlooked. She's just something to be used as uh, some kind of prop, saying you're just kind of um, <clears throat> an accessory, just something that's there. And Tamar is, is uh, <clears throat> excuse me, viewed in this way. So you see this whole thing playing out here. And the Lord saw that. He also put Onan to death. <clears throat> and then Judah doesn't want to lose his last boy. And what's that familiar? Like, how, how does that ring a bell to you? It seems like everybody loves their last boy, you know, that kind of thing. So we saw that play out with Joseph and Jacob. We saw that play out with the favoritism happening with, um, you know, even Isaac liking Esau more. And there's all this stuff come out and really is reminiscent of what uh, the whole lineage is going through. He doesn't want to lose his third boy, which is what? Is this a man of faith? You know, if God was killing off your sons and you knew that, you would just be like, no, 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 no. Just don't touch this boy. Or would you try to teach the boy saying, you know, God is God. We need to live right. Instead of doing that, he just hides the boy. And it says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, um, yeah, just wait till he grows up. He's too young. Just wait till he grows up and I'll give him to you. And until then, remain a widow. See, what happens then is Tamar lost everything. 
um, the way that they would even have any kind of notoriety or any place in society is through family. So you know how our last names are Kim or Lim or Park or Lee or Schult, whatever it is, right? Whatever the case is, we have our last names and that's how we're kind of defined. When I go to, when I go to uh, someone named Peter, I go, Peter, Peter what? And if you go Peter Kim, oh, I know this Peter Kim. But if I went to Peter Lim and I said Peter Kim, be like, I'm not Peter Kim, I'm Peter Lim, right? And so the way they knew each other was by their fathers. So that's why we would have things like David, the son of Jesse. The son of was their last name. That's how you got your identity. So the whole family would adopt the father above them's, their, them, their name. So if you were, if, for instance, my dad's name is JD, it's, it's Jong Duck, but he calls himself JD, but my father's name is JD, if I were living back in those days, I would be Eugene, the, fa- the son of JD. That's how they would know me. And so that's how the family had any kind of place in society. Being a widow just meant you had nothing because you're not part of any family. And you might think that's messed up, and it is messed up. And that is how Tamar ended up. That's messed up. She was just an innocent bystander. She went into this family, and all of a sudden, now she has nothing. And she was promised um, the, third, the third son. And so we continue go. Over the course of time, Shua dies, and we see here Jacob, I'm sorry, Judah was comforted, and after this, uh, this sheep shearing kind of season, which means it's time to celebrate, it's like harvest in Korean, it's like Chuseok, they had sheep shearing uh, celebrations, he goes, and this is what's on his mind, I need, to, I need to have sex. And so he goes to the place where they're having a party, and he's looking for, guess what, a prostitute. This is where Tamar takes off her widow's clothes, puts on a veil, so you can see that even back then, women didn't normally wear, wear a veil, but she actually put that on, and because she put it on, uh, people thought that she was a temple prostitute, which is different from a regular prostitute. Um, anyway, but people thought she was a temple prostitute, and she saw the father-in-law, Judah, Judah saw her, and he goes, let me have sex with you. Literally goes, let me come into you. Let me have sex with you. And she goes, what are you going to give me? He's like, I'll give you a young goat. Perhaps she had nothing. Even a goat would be better. I'm not sure what was on her mind, but we'll see how this progresses. And after they have sex, he goes, I don't have the goat now, or I don't have the goat now. She goes, give me a pledge. She is one smart cookie. She goes, you don't have a goat with you, so give me a pledge. Give me your signet, give me your cord, give me your scepter. And all these things were kind of who he was. It's like if you have a stamp of who you are, you could roll out a stamp and it will be like, oh, I know who you are. You are Judah, the son of Jacob. And you could roll out this stamp. And so he had that. He said, I'll give you these to you instead of the goat, and I'll send you the goat later. I just want to have sex right now. So she says, yes, they have sex and then she becomes pregnant by her father-in-law. This is like crazy K-drama stuff, except crazier. Um, but this is actually really happening. 
And then this is what happens. Three months later, people find out that Tamar is pregnant. And Tamar can't be pregnant because she needed to wait for the youngest son, which Judah was never going to give her, so she was always going to live in poverty and filth with nothing, nothing to her name. Uh, But then she's pregnant. So Judah, with his righteous indignation, says, bring her out. We're going to burn her, right? And then as they were bringing her out, she says, wait, wait, wait. Uh, the father of this child is, uh, has these possessions. You know, these possessions belong to the father of the child. And then Judah sees that it's his. And he's like, oh, okay, let's not burn her. <laughs> I mean, basically that's what happens. But the, what is really interesting is Judah has this moment Now, if you look at the whole story in this progression, I try to explain it as well as I could, Judah was not a great man. In fact, it seems like he was kind of a, if we use the word today, he was kind of a skeezy man. Um, He only was looking out for himself. In fact, he even ditched his brothers, took some of that money. I don't know how much, but he took that money, and he made another friend, didn't even fear God, lives in lust, has babies, cares for them more than anything else because that's, that's how he, uh, that's his pride. And as soon as he sees something wrong in somebody else, guess what he does? He points the finger at them. They should die, never looking at himself. And then when this comes out, he says something. In verse 26, he says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again, meaning he never had sex with her again. But the, the, the direct, the literal translation is, she's righteous, I'm not. She is righteous, I'm, I'm not. And so he has this epiphany. This is important to know. This is important to know for the continuing story of Joseph as well. He realizes that he had everything wrong all this time. There's an epiphany that happens in Judah here that tells him, I've been wrong all this time. I thought I was right all this time. I thought I was living perfectly all this time. We can read it. When we read it, we're like, oh, Judah, you're such a terrible person. But when you're living it, sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we think we're living perfectly. We think there's nothing wrong with the way we're living. But as soon as we see someone else do something wrong, we're like, oh, you should be burned. You should go to jail. You should be kicked out. But when it comes to us, we're so blinded. The statement, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, is we all think that we're going to heaven. But guess what? To go to heaven, you need to die. No one wants to do that part. But like, I love this. But you never want to pay the price for it. I want this. But some, for some reason, we want it for free. And it somehow makes sense to us. Our priorities are all messed up. Or Judah's was. And he put everything else before what he should have put before. Everything else was more important. Uh, in fact, even all the way back in 1991, they did a Gallup poll that uh, polled Americans, 78% of Americans thinks 
or thought that they would go to heaven when they die. Excuse me. 78% of Americans. But when we poll the 78%, they never pray, read the Bible, and they don't even attend church. They admit, they admit, these people that were polled, they admitted that they live to please themselves instead of God. You, you have to wonder, why would you want to go to heaven then? Why would you want to go to heaven if all you want to do is please yourself and not God? Uh, in an article titled, Are We Ready for Heaven? Maurice R. Irwin points out that only 30% of the American people who call themselves Christian attend church at least once a week. Just once a week. 34% of people who say uh, that they are Christian in America. Um, is that what Christianity is, you know? Is Christianity, and then you, you might come back and say, is Christianity this basic bare minimum? Then what is it? Let me do the minimum. Is it coming out to church every week? Fine. I'll come out to church every week, and then I'm going to go to heaven, right? What, what, what else do I need to do? Oh, you need to tithe? Okay. What's 10%? Gross? Okay, fine. I'll give 10% gross. I'm going to go to heaven, right? And you do this bare minimum. And we think that that is what, what gets us into heaven. And a man comes onto this earth and he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's just one parable. It's just like one sentence, but this is so deep. The man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to the earth and he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What does that mean? You want to go to heaven, then you have to die. You want to go to heaven, there is no half-hearted way to get it. There's no like, oh, I want to do this. What's the minimum that I have to pay? What is the seat cost? I'll pay that much. There's no half-hearted way to get to heaven. But what it really is saying also is that when you see what that treasure is, then you know that whatever the cost is, you are getting back far more than what you're paying for. How does that make sense? Well, let's say I'm going to give an example here. Uh, who, loves, who loves shoes or sneakers? Who loves sneakers or shoes? Does anybody want to admit to that? You're all evil. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you love shoes, all right, we got to be a little more honest. Who loves shoes? Let's be honest here. This is before God. Who loves shoes? There you go. And I go to you. I go to you. I'm going to give you these pair of shoes. And these shoes, market price is $1,000. Market price, these shoes cost $1,000. But I'm going to give it to you for $50. Who loves cars? Can I see a raise of hand? Who loves cars? Anybody love cars here? Not, not as many? Okay. Let's see. I'm going to give you the brand new, uh, I don't know, everybody has their own taste. Let's just say... Um, Let's just say a Porsche 911 Turbo, right? I'm going to give you a brand new Porsche 911 Turbo, and this is the market price for it, okay? I'm going to give you these shoes. It's, 
it's worth $1,000, and you love these shoes. You know, I think we were joking before, they're the new Jerusalem 11s or something like that, right? Um, instead of Jordan 11s. Or uh, these really great shoes, or this brand new Porsche. But these shoes cost $1,000, I'm going to give it to you for $90. You don't have $90. You love shoes. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You want these Jerusalem 11s. They're the hottest thing on the market right now. Hotter. There's nothing hotter. If you put that on Instagram, you get 1,000 likes. That's how hot they are. And I'm going to give you this brand new Porsche 911 Turbo for $500. You don't have $500. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You are going to go through everything that you have to come up with $90 or $500. It doesn't matter what you need to sell, who you have to beg to. You are going to get that money and come back to me like, yes, I'm going to take that deal. That deal is crazy. You're crazy for doing it, but I'm going to take you up on that deal. I'm going to take those pair of shoes for $90. bucks. i am going to take that car for $500. Bucks. A lot of us... We see the treasure in the field. Jesus goes, this is treasure. Heaven, the kingdom of heaven. It's like treasure hidden in the field. And we're like, how much does it cost? Eh, I don't know. I don't know. Eh, what's the minimum? 90 bucks? Can I get away with 50? How about 45? If you know the worth of what you see in front of you, you will do anything sell anything that you have so what is the lesson here the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then it goes then in his joy when you see the kingdom of heaven that's presented before you there is absolute joy that happens and you're like yeah what a deal i'll take that and that's why enjoy, you sell everything that you have so you can have this because it's so much more worth it. Everything else doesn't matter anymore. That's what the gospel is. That's what you've been offered. That's what Jesus Christ offers you. But there is no way we can see it unless God opens up our eyes. There is no way Judah would have seen it until he went through this and finally realized I am not righteous. And Jesus opens up the believer's eyes. And when you see that, he goes out and sells all that he has because he knows the worth of that treasure. The next one is a pearl. But the pearl merchant knows what the price and what it's worth. So he'll sell everything because he knows it's worth so much more. But when we do it, with a little regret, you pull back a little, I don't know, you know, every Sunday, 10%, you know, seems like a scam to me, then you can't do it. Honestly, I'm not going to try to convince you to tithe. That's not my job. But when you feel like it's a scam, you just can't do it with joy. That means you don't see the worth in it. Who convinces you? I can't convince you. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens up our eyes. And if he's opened up your eyes, 
you have to know that he has shown you treasure beyond anything that you can imagine. Anything that you can imagine. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's the key word here? For me, it's consider. For I consider. What does that mean? That means just like Judah, just like all these other uh, heroes in the Bible, what did they first do? They saw. They saw. It's not just, "Mm, I see. No, it's like, I look at it, and I look at it, and I look at it. I'm like, this is more and more amazing as time goes on. And that can happen with worldly stuff. Don't get me wrong. That's what lust is. When you continue to count your money, let's just keep on counting money. Now now it's a cash-less society, so we just keep on looking at our bank account. Every day you have to open up your bank app and look at your balance. Look at your balance. I don't know if any of you are like that or tempted to do that. But when it was a cash-based society, everybody just continued to count their money. When you continue to do that, you start loving it. It's hard to part with it. It's really hard to part with it because you continue to look at it. But what Paul did was he looked at everything in this world and he came upon this treasure. And as he looked at it and as he considered it, as he reckoned the gospel, he he realizes nothing is worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Nothing is comparable to the treasure that is before me. That is why when we come out before God, we come out before him with joy. It's an amazing gift we've gotten. But that's the thing. We need to continue to consider and look at the gospel. That's why we gather here on Sundays. And that is called discipline. We need discipline. Just like if you want to be physically disciplined, you got to continue to work out. You got to continue to lift. You got to continue to exercise. And then you're physically disciplined. If you don't do that, you cannot say you're physically disciplined. You cannot honestly say you can appreciate the joys of being healthy and fit because you're not. But that's why there's that discipline. So, what actually happens? That discipline, what's actually happening is when Jesus first came out to this, down to this earth, the first message he gave, the first word he said was repent. This is how we must approach the Bible. Some of us, when I was a youth pastor, somebody had a problem with the confession of sins portion. They're like, Pastor Eugene, weren't we forgiven once and for all? Why are we confessing every week? It seems a little weird to me. And I told them, we as people and children of God are always to live a life of repentance. Everything that we do is repentance because we have to recognize that I am not perfect. That's why I always live a life of repentance. In fact, that is the key in the first thesis in his 95 thesis of Martin Luther, to live that repentant life. The first thing that we need to do is acknowledge that I don't have joy. Isn't that weird? Isn't that amazing, though? The first thing that we have to actually admit is that I want to love you, God, but I just don't have love. That's weird, but it's true. You can be married for a long time. You can have a long-standing friendship, but eventually you get tired of each other. What happens? Will you just divorce? You can't. So you need to admit, 
I need to learn to love you better. I need to learn to serve you better. I need to continue to lower myself. You need to admit that your love isn't perfect. That's the first step to love. If you think your love is perfect, guess what? Everything else falls below your standard of love. You're the perfect person, so obviously your spouse, your friend, they can never hit that standard that you've falsely created this dichotomy just like Judah never thought anything was wrong with him. The first thing that we do is we need to know how to repent. That repentant heart is what Jesus desires of us. The first thing that he says isn't, I want you guys to believe in me, follow me. He didn't say that. He said, repent. And then he said the other things, but he said, repent, number one. I'll leave you with that verse one more time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. C.S. Lewis says this, I find, if I find in myself a desire, desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He even knew that. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy. We pray, God, I've tried it. It just doesn't work. I need you. I might not find a joy, but I want that joy that merchant had. I want that joy that pearl merchant had too. I want that joy that I could sell everything and go to you and say, I want that treasure. That's what I want, God. That's my heart, Lord. I pray that's the prayer of each and every single one of you. And that is the prayer of our church as we follow him. Let's pray.